something I started talking about Tuesday night very loosely. So if you were here Tuesday, I'm going to tie up a lot of things. That was really fresh. Uh, but uh, I'm going to talk about a, a, I guess you would say, a concept of um, holiness. And, um, and if you're watching this from, uh, if anybody that I grew up with, or me and Matt, or our family, thank you, Kyle, grew up with, um, or if you just grew up in the South at all, when you hear the word holiness, um, typically you get a negative feeling. So when somebody mentions the word holiness, nine times out of 10, if you mention that to somebody who's been in church at all, there's almost a negative connotation to that idea of holiness. So uh, I, I just feel the Lord's been moving in me about this since February and finally kind of released me to start sharing some of this stuff. So uh, that's where we're going to be. I had a whole thing planned in First Peter, but I actually think we're going to go to Romans 6 instead. The Lord changed that up on me yesterday. So uh, Romans 6, we might hit First Peter, um, but I'm going to just do a lot of editing on the fly. So here we go. I'm going to read some stuff that I've been writing, and then we'll, we'll find ourselves uh, momentarily in Romans 6. If you're new, thanks for being here. I see a lot of uh, familiar faces that maybe aren't dream regulars, but you come every now and then. So glad you guys are here. I know it's kind of a, a different season with some churches being open, some churches being closed. And so uh, we welcome everybody from all different churches. That's what we're about, the body. So I'm glad you guys are here. Thanks to everybody that's watching. We love y'all. Um, all right. The concept of holiness has become taboo in the past decade. That is, that is, if you don't know what that word means, I actually had to look it up. So uh, that is Religion has forbid discussion of what Scripture says marks us as those set apart. So the concept of holiness has become a forbidden topic, really, uh, in the church for the most part. Um, ironically, it's the one thing that Scripture says marks us as those who are set apart. We have replaced holiness which really a lot of people see only as like fundamentalism, as in uh, doing all the right things. When you, when you mention holiness, most people think of doing the right things. That's not what holiness means. That's what fundamentalism is, if you want to get the theological. But uh, that's what we've seen it as. So we've replaced that with the teaching of grace. I love and am so thankful for the grace of Yahweh. But grace and holiness are not competing ideas. Grace and holiness go together, intertwined by the reality that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So today, today, when we hear holiness, we usually think of works-based Christianity, right? If I say if I, if I mention the word holiness in regards to the church, immediately, at least me, I don't know about y'all, immediately my first thought is works-based Christianity. This isn't in my notes, but this is something the Lord showed me yesterday morning as I was just studying some of this stuff. This is really the whole idea of the day, and I'm going to bring a lot of stuff around this, so if this doesn't click in the, initially, it's okay. Holiness, holiness is not works-based Christianity. Holiness is Christianity-based works. You re okay, you ready? All right. Holiness, holiness is not works-based Christianity. In other words, holiness isn't you do so many works to earn Christianity. That's what a lot of us view it as. 
okay? Holiness is Christianity-based works, what you do from being identified as a Christian. Okay. While living in holiness involves works, the works are not what you do to earn righteousness or favor. The works are what you do from the fact that you are eternally righteous and favored. The New Testament word for being holy or holiness is hagios, the Greek word, which means set apart by and for God. That's all it means. So when you see holy or holiness or being holy as he is holy, First Peter, the only thing that Greek word means is to be set apart by and for God. That's it. Okay. It denotes that you are other than what and who those that are not saved are around you. So it marks you as other than those who are unbelievers. So holiness literally means to be set apart by and for God. For example, let me use my marriage for a second. I didn't warn Jordan before this. So, For example, I'm in a covenant with my wife. When you get married, you enter into a covenant. If you didn't know that, that's what you do. Because I am set apart by and for my wife in marriage, there's a way I now live in upholding my identity as bridegroom that is other than how I lived before we started our relationship. You with me? My life looks different today than it did before I ever met Jordan. Why? Because there's the presence of a covenant. So it's redefined everything I do. Tracking with me? Okay. So I steward money different. I view other women different. I manage my time different. I even dress and look different based on what she likes. With the exception of the beard. She's not a huge fan of the beard. That's a non-negotiable right now. That'll change one day. <laughs> the beauty of covenant comes in how the other stewards their part of the joint covenant. It's beautiful to me and shows me how much my wife loves me when she lives devoted to me. Y'all with me? This is like, I mean, this is not deep stuff, so y'all should be right with me. Okay? Do I love her the same when she does not steward it well in a comment or an action or an argument? Yes. I love her exactly the same no matter how she stewards our covenant. Okay, I love her unconditionally or without condition. So her works cannot earn my love for she already has my love. If we could get that, all marriages would be restored in America. You know, I love her not because of what she does. I love her regardless of what she does. And then when the other comes around and says, I love them regardless of what they do, all of a sudden you have a marriage where each person is humbling themselves for the greater good. So one's lifting up the other and the other's lifting up the other. And you're traveling along this covenant relationship that ends in a beautiful life and family and kids that pursue the same thing. I, I, I really, I believe, man, rabbits, I believe that our 
young adults, teenagers, whatever you want to say, young people, I believe today would not be so attracted to sexuality of the world if we had mothers and fathers who stewarded their own covenant correctly. You, do, you, do you know why? Let me just brag on my Do you know why I pursue my wife like I do? Because I have parents that to this day pursue each other like they're designed to pursue each other. And so I refuse to settle for anything less than what I saw, right? Now, if, if you're like the majority and maybe you didn't grow up with parents who were like that, that's where the love of Jesus enters into your story. And now, instead of looking to a mother and father that maybe didn't fulfill the role they were designed to fulfill in your life, now you're looking to the bridegroom who is fulfilling it currently in your life personally. So then you refuse to settle for anything less than what you've seen in him. Okay. So I love her without condition. So for her to try to earn what she already has would be a waste of time. She cannot get more of what she's already full of, which is how I see her and her being my bride. So where do works come in? You ready? This is the part I didn't talk to her about, but that's okay. So where do works come in? Works come from the place of inherited identity. So we might ask the question, now that I'm beloved, where could we go and what could we do from here? So, so for us, going back to the marriage thing, for us, it was bringing Veda out of our covenant. So the works are not how we earn each other's love. The works are now that we have each other's love, what could we do? And Veda appears into the world whose DNA, if you just took a strand of her DNA out, we learned about DNA at Adventure this week, so my mind's kind of been blown. It's awesome. But if you take a strand of her DNA out, it would be half Jordan and half Josh. She's literally all the way down to the atoms that make her up fully a product of our covenant. So, so the works coming out of our covenant is reproducing what is full of our covenant. That's holiness. Because we made holiness the way we earned righteousness, we missed out on the holiness produced from righteousness. Just like grace and holiness go hand in hand, righteousness and holiness go hand in hand. Think of it like this. Think of it like this. Holiness is what you get when righteousness and worship reproduce. So, so I desire to live holy because I am the righteousness of God and I offer my life as a living sacrifice. I don't feel like I have to live holy to earn righteousness. I desire to live holy as one who has been made righteous in the eyes of God. All I want in my life is more of him. So in order to take steps into the holy of holies, if you will, it's going to require my life to be purer and purer and purer. That is not something I can earn. It's something that I inherit as one who is living in righteousness and then reproducing holiness in everything that I do. So anytime we mention dying to self, living in your identity, being in the world, but not of the world, etc. We're talking about holiness. If you ever hear the phrase dying to self, 
you're literally hearing you need to live holy. Same thing. So in February, the Lord said he was making us. We were on our way. Some of y'all remember this. We were on our way to Kohl's back when you could go there with, you know, no restrictions. Amazing. Um, we were on our way to Kohl's, and I just heard the Lord whisper as we're pulling into the parking lot, completely random. I'm sure there's some prophetic stuff here and there about that. But the Lord said that he was making us the leaders of the new holiness movement. Now, when he said that, I said, no, thank you, sir. Not me. You know what I mean? It was like, take that thing and cast it as far as the east is from the west. I don't want any part of it. I ran from it until I realized what he actually meant. We've been in a process of learning what it means to be the righteousness of God. That's all, that's all we've talked about. Anything that has to do with identity or beloved identity or how he sees us or him being good, all of that has to do with righteousness, being made right, okay? So we've been in a season learning what it means to be the righteousness of God. I believe as part of the hope and the close and accessible revelations we've been talking about so much, that he's preparing us for what we do with righteousness, which is leveraging it into holiness. So just to reiterate, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna reiterate this the whole day just so I can make it crystal clear so people don't think I'm twisting this, okay? So just to reiterate, I am not talking about works to earn anything. That is not what I'm talking about. Okay, you couldn't earn it if you tried. So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm solely, solely talking about the fruit from what has already been earned. Another way I've been saying it is this. Holiness cannot produce righteousness. Or let me say it like this. Holiness cannot earn righteousness. Holiness is how I steward righteousness. Y'all with me? I know this is a lot of like theology and all that stuff, but it's going to get a little easier. So now that we've put holiness in its rightful place, I can begin teaching on why we should be set apart. I'm going to use that phrase a lot more today than the word holiness, just so we can kind of clear our brains of gunk, okay? So when I say set apart, I'm, all, I'm talking about holiness. That's what it means. But I think it's going to help us think clearly if we see it as what it is. All right. So Song of Songs, just to give you an example, don't turn there. Song of Songs is the great book of beloved identity, which I believe you can use righteousness and beloved identity interchangeably, okay? So it's the great book of righteousness or beloved identity. But there's a particular moment that sticks out to me, and it's this. It's in Song of Songs 2, and, uh, verse 14 and 15. Hey, Mike, what's up, man? Um, 14 and 15. So just... just don't turn there, just listen to this, okay? So he says to the bride, so Jesus talking to us prophetically, it was I who took you and hid you up high in the secret stairway of the sky. Now listen to how it changes right here. He says, let me see your radiant face and hear your sweet voice, how beautiful your eyes of worship and lovely your voice in prayer. So when you hear that, she's already earned how he sees her, Right? Your radiant face, sweet voice, how beautiful your eyes of worship, lovely your voice in prayer. He says all of that before he says what he's about to say. So she's already earned how he sees her. Then he says this, you must catch 
the troubling foxes, those sly little foxes that hinder our relationship. For they raid our budding vineyard of love to ruin what I've planted within you. Will you catch them and remove them from me? We will do it together. So he doesn't say, if you'll remove the troubling foxes, then I'll look at you with your beautiful eyes of worship. He says, your eyes of worship are beautiful. Therefore, we got to remove the troubling foxes. You see that? So why would he tell her why, if he already sees her as good, why would he tell her to remove the foxes? If you read in the Passion Translation, the footnote right there, for foxes is compromises that we've allowed to slide into our garden. Okay? So foxes, compromises. Because he was plant. So why would he tell her to remove the foxes? Because he was planting things within her that compromise was destroying. So she was asked to partner with him in removing these compromises so that she could produce the fullness of what she, the beloved, was designed for. Okay? That is holiness. That is holiness. So go with me to, uh, actually, I want to read something, then we're going to go to uh, Romans 6. So let me pull out my phone. I said this Tuesday night. I hate using technology in services. Um, but it's great. I love it. Thank you, Lord, for it. I just personally don't like it. All right. So let me, let me before we go to Romans 6, and I'm going to go ahead and open up my Bible to, uh, to that bad boy. Um, let, me, let me just read this, okay? The Lord pointed this out to me this week, and this is where we're going to live in this tension right here. So Paul, Apostle Paul, in Romans 3.28, writes this. Y'all ready for this? Your mind's about to be blown. Paul says this. A person is declared to be right or righteous. A person is declared to be right on the basis of faith alone, apart from works. Got that? Paul a person is declared to be right solely on the basis of faith apart from works. Here's what James says in James 2.24. A person is righteous by works and not faith alone. See, some of you, I didn't know that was in there, did you? Ready? Paul. A person is declared by faith alone, righteous by faith alone. James, a person is declared by works and not by faith alone. Bill Johnson says that revelation is in the tension of two seeming contradictory ideas, seemingly contradictory ideas, okay? So who was right, Paul or James? Yes. Scholars used to, they don't do this anymore, used to debate these two like nobody's business because they would say that James was writing right there to basically go against Paul, this, this uh, Gentile reaching crazy guy. You know what I'm saying? That's what they used to think. But James, if you read through James chapter two, which let me encourage you, I've been doing this a lot lately. I've been reading the Bible in chunks, which I used to do a lot, but not just taking one verse. I'm talking about today I'm going to read the book of Romans and just taking it in chunks. Because you get into some messy situations when you pick it up at Romans 3.28, read a few verses, then hop over to James 2.24 and read a few verses, and now you're sitting there thinking, well, the Bible's not the Word of God, it contradicts itself. Right? 
But that, that's, what, that's what we do. Man, I, f- I feel like the Lord called me to read James 2.24. He probably did. I would encourage you just read, go ahead and read the whole book of James. You'll hit 24. You know what I'm saying? Right? Like the numbers in your Bible are not divinely inspired. I can't wait. People like heretic. You know, you know what I'm saying? The numbers in your Bible were not, they are not divinely inspired. I'm thankful for them, but they were placed hundreds of years down the road just for us to be able to say, go to Romans 6. That's it. But when these were written, they were written as an entire letter. No breaks, no nothing. So when somebody would deliver this letter, let's say to the first group who got the letter of Romans, whoever that first group was, Lord, can you imagine hearing this? You know what I'm saying? They're sitting there and they're receiving what I believe is the greatest writing in human history. I believe the book of Romans, greater than any philosophical writing, any historical writing, Romans tops all of them for me. Unbelievable, okay? So they're hearing this stuff And I want to encourage you, you've got to go through and read the Bible in chunks. James is five chapters. If we can't take 10 minutes to read the book of James, Lord help us, right? Five chapters, that's it, that's it, okay? So if you read, I'm not going to do this, ironically, after I I said all that. If you read through the entire uh, book of James, but specifically James 2, James is not talking about faith as in believing in God. Paul is writing to a group of people who are brand new into this whole God thing. So Paul is writing an introduction to God, essentially. That's what the book of Romans is. is he's writing to uh, a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, but primarily his audience is Gentiles. Okay, So he's writing this book explaining all the intro, the 101 to Christianity. James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, is writing primarily to Jews who knew of God, who grew up their whole lives being around talk of God. And for them, the works-based theology was how they earned their way in the law into a right standing with God. So James is not introducing them to a new faith. James is now coming around on the back end to mostly mature people of God. And he's saying, now that you've believed, faith without works is dead. In other words, if you believe in God, but the world doesn't see your good works because of your belief in God, it's dead. It means nothing. So Paul isn't telling them never do works. Paul is saying, you need to believe. James is saying, now that you've believed, There must be something produced from your life. And that's where he gets. He gets a person is righteous or, depending on your translation, justified by works and not faith alone. He's not throwing out faith, but what he's saying is, is your righteousness must produce works. And if it's not producing works, I would question if what you have at the root is your true faith. That's what he's saying. He's saying if your life doesn't produce anything, it's cause for concern of whether or not what you have is faith. Paul is saying to a group of people who are on fire, if you read Romans 1, the Romans' faith was so on fire that it was known across the world. They were burning hot. So he's not writing to a group of people who have become apathetic, like most James, to be honest, is writing to a lot of apathetic Christians. They believe, but they're doing nothing. So he's introducing works from their belief. 
Paul is writing to the Romans who are on fire and changing the world because of their faith. And he's saying, hey, don't get distracted and think your works are earning you anything. They're awesome. They're doing great things. But faith is what earns your righteousness. Do you see that? I know this a lot. Okay. So the Lord gave me this, and then we're going to jump over to Romans 7, or 6, 6, 6, Romans 6. He said, holiness protects you from becoming apathetic. Holiness protects you, or being set apart, protects you from becoming apathetic. The enemy wants to make us think we need to be set apart in order to be declared righteous, so that when we are declared righteous, we won't live set apart. And then I just wrote, let he who has an ear hear. Take that home. So I believe in this season of soil tending, it's what we've been talking about, tending the soil or hope, we've been saying, we have to ask ourselves the question, where have I allowed compromise to affect what he has planted? Where have I allowed compromise to affect what he has planted within me? As a pastor, as a pastor, where have I allowed our church to become compromised? Not because it changes our anointing in any way. We're anointed. But because it does affect how I operate and how we operate in the anointing we've been given. Let me give you this example. Let me give you this example. I know many, 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 in fact, I would dare say all pastors are anointed to do amazing things for the kingdom. So there are churches, there are, there are Catholic bishops right now today that have some crazy beliefs, but at the core of who they are, they're really anointed to affect the kingdom of God. But somewhere along the way, in 99% of our American churches, somewhere along the way, we've compromised and we've compromised and we've compromised. And because of the absence of the holiness message, we've instead said there's grace for our compromise but we never actually dealt with the compromise. So all we've done to go back to last week is we've covered up symptoms when there is a root disease that is eating away at the anointing of thousands and thousands and thousands of anointed ones called to bring the earth, to bring the earth into alignment with the kingdom of heaven. Are y'all with me? So instead, anointings being wasted or stolen by foxes that the only way they can be dealt with is to realize that they're foxes or compromises, repent, and then move away from that direction. Repenting is changing how you think. And then the second meaning is to change the will that you follow or to turn and go another way. Okay. So the question isn't whether or not we should be set apart. You can't be a believer without being set apart, right? So the question isn't whether or not we should be set apart. The question is, what role does being set apart play in the kingdom hosting process? So let me read this. I'm going to start, actually, I'm going to start at Romans 5, 18, and then we'll get into chapter 6. So hopefully you're there by now, um, and hopefully you're not too uh, angry yet. Um, but this is great stuff, y'all. This is great stuff. Let me just use this, this example. Let me use this example because I know people hate the holiness thing. If, so I'm your pastor, right? 
welcome to church on Sunday morning. It's August. I'm your pastor. Okay? If I go out, let, let me just, if I go out and party and cheat on my wife and start doing drugs and all that stuff, are you guys going to want me to be your pastor still? No. Why? I'm still the righteousness of God. Right? Why not? He sees me the same. R right? There's grace. He forgives me. I got grace. Right? See? You see what we do? So, so and let me say it like this. Every, every human being is designed to pursue holiness. If I go to an unbeliever, that does, that, an atheist, and say, I'm a pastor, but this is what I've been doing the past few weeks. Do you think I should still be a pastor? Unbeliever would say, absolutely not. So everybody's designed for that. Why? We say it like this around the church world. There's a higher standard. What we're actually saying is, is you should be set apart for God. As a believer, your life should look different. Not because that's how you earn salvation, but because you have salvation. You know what I'm saying? So why, sh why should I pray for the sick? Not because it earns me anything in the kingdom, but because I've already earned everything in the kingdom. Therefore, I need to leverage who I am into a lost and dying world, right? I don't need to speak on earth as it is in heaven because I'm not going to be transformed or saved until heaven's here. I need to speak on earth as it is in heaven because I'm already a citizen of heaven. So I have authority to bring the kingdom of this, the kingdom of our Lord into the kingdom of the earth because I'm already a part of the kingdom of our Lord. Paul calls himself an ambassador of Christ. If I'm an ambassador of America, but I live in China, guess what my address is? America. Why? Because wherever an ambassador goes, that location of whatever American consulate, wherever that is, that location is considered American territory. It doesn't matter what country you're in. You see what I'm saying? So when Paul says, I'm an ambassador of the kingdom, what he's saying is, is I came from a world that holds all the keys to this world, and the reason he planted me here is so that I can take that world and bring it into this world. The only way we can do that is to first identify the fact that we have been set apart. So, so I don't need, let me say it like this, the, the, the whole relevant thing in the church today is, bogus bogus i want to identify with the world so that i can win the world win them to what you know what i'm saying if they see the same thing in me that they see in their lost friends because i'm like jesus and i'm supposed to go to bars because jesus went to bars right except here's one issue when jesus walked into a bar that place was no longer a place where there was a bunch of drunks and people hooking up. That place was now a bar for the kingdom of heaven. He did not walk in and then submit himself to whatever environment he was in. He walked in and changed the environment he was in because he had the authority to do so. So when you walk into your classroom at school, you're not walking in as just another student. So whatever happens, happens. You're walking in as a son or daughter of King Jesus, of Abba, of Yahweh, a brother or sister to King Jesus, a son or daughter to Abba, Father, Yahweh, okay? 
clear that up. A lot of people always like, you know, I'm a son of Jesus. No, 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 no. You're a son of God, Abba, Yahweh. You're a brother or sister of Jesus. Not that big of a deal. That kind of drives me crazy though. Um, <laughs> Papa Jesus. No, 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 no. Close, close. Um, <laughs> oh man, I spend way, way, way too much time listening to podcasts. Um, but you see, do y'all understand what I'm saying? So when I talk about holiness now, we've moved. When I talk about holiness now, we've moved from, from just works. Okay, y'all with me? We've moved from that. Now we're talking about what does my life look like now that I am the righteousness of God? Why did Jesus live in holiness? Because he was Jesus, right? Why would he sin when he is the perfect righteousness of God? Why would you go to McDonald's when somebody gave you a gift card to Grill Marks? That makes no sense. Crazy, right? If it's free, if it's free, why would you settle for something way lesser when you have access to something greater? So, we, so, so why, why don't I go around and, and check out girls all the time? Because I've got my wife. And me being in love with my wife is a lot better than me trying to go around and look at other girls behind her back. Why would I settle for something less when I've got the best? That's a tweet that. I didn't mean to do that. That's a great thing. That's a, that's a tweet. I've never done a tweet thing. That's, that's it right there. A, tw uh, a Twitter. Twitter thing. <laughs> tweetable phrase. Tweetable phrase. Twitter thing. <laughs> but... Right? Why would I settle for less when I've got the best? Hey. All right. I mean, but, but think about that, Christian. Think about that. Christians, think about this. Why would you settle for intimacy with something in the world when you have access to intimacy with the one who spoke the world into existence? This is what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about saying no to sin and living a boring life. I'm saying saying yes to Yahweh and living life to the full. Okay, uh, Romans 5, verse 18. I'm going to start there. In other words, and Romans 5 is unbelievable. I was tempted to read just all of it. But in other words, just as condemnation came upon all people through one transgression, talking about Adam, so through one act of righteous, excuse me, so through one righteous act of Jesus' sacrifice, the perfect righteousness that makes us right with God and leads us to a victorious life is now available. So righteousness. One man's disobedience opened the door for all humanity to become sinners. So also one man's obedience opened the door for many to be made perfectly right with God and acceptable to him. So all this has to do with righteousness. So then the law was introduced into God's plan to bring the reality of human sinfulness out of hiding. I love that. And yet, wherever sin increased, there was more than enough of God's grace to triumph all the more. Amen. And just as sin reigned through death, so also this sin-conquering grace will reign as king through righteousness, imparting eternal life through Jesus, our Lord and Messiah. Unbelievable. Right? Now let's make the transition into chapter 6. Let me take a drink real quick because I'm about to explode up here. 
So what, di- what then do we do? Okay? He goes through and talks about this amazing righteousness that we have, okay? Where sin reigned, grace reigned all the more through righteousness, imparting eternal life through, we, through Jesus. And then he says this, so what do we do then? Should we persist in sin so that God's kindness and grace will increase? Increase? What a terrible thought. This is it right here. We have died to sin once and for all as a dead man passes away from this life. So how could we live under sin's rule a moment longer? Or have you forgotten that all of us who were immersed into union with Jesus, the anointed one, were immersed into union with his death? Sharing his death by our baptism means that we were co-buried and in tune with him so that when the Father's glory raised Christ from the dead, we were also raised with him. So we have been co-resurrected with him so that we could be empowered to walk in the freshness of new life. For since we are permanently grafted into him to experience a death like his, we are permanently grafted into him to experience a resurrection like his and the new life that it imparts. So listen to this right here. Listen to this. Could it be any clearer? Remember what this chapter started with. So what do we do? Do we just keep sinning so that God's grace can abound? Okay, that's what this chapter started with. So we're in that that train of thought. Verse six, could it be any clearer that our former identity, what's your former identity? Sin, okay? Our former identity is now and forever deprived of its power. For we were co-crucified with him to dismantle the stronghold of sin within us. Why? So that, this is huge right here, so that we would not continue to live a moment longer submitted to sin's power. So at this point, he's transitioned from just saying no to sin. That's, again, that is not what holiness is. It's not saying no to things. It's being set apart. Okay? That's fundamentalism, and that's great. If that's, that's your thing, rock and roll. Okay? I'm talking about being set apart. Set apart. And what Paul says is, if you've died to sin, if you've died to sin, you need to make sure you're not living enslaved to the thing that you were supposed to have died to. So any time sin enters the picture, you're becoming a slave to an inferior kingdom, which Paul calls a lie, because that person should have died. So it's not an issue of right and wrong. It's an issue of who you are serving. Man, man, man. Obviously, a dead person is incapable of sinning. And if we were co-crucified with the anointed one, we know that we will also share in the fullness of his life. And we know that since the anointed one has been raised from the dead to die no more, 
his resurrection life has vanquished death and its power over him is finished. I, I just like, do y'all hear this stuff? I know I'm a nerd. This should blow you. I mean, this should make you want to go tackle everything. You know what I'm saying? Like he says, Jesus died and was resurrected. And because of that, because of that, sin has no power over him. Because of his resurrection life, has, his resurrection life has vanquished death and its power over him is finished. But remember, what did you say? That we were co-crucified and co-resurrected with him. Hello? So if his resurrection made death and its power over him finished, what does it mean to be co-resurrected with the one that death and its power is finished over? It means death and its power has been finished over us as well. And we know, excuse me, for by verse 10, his sacrifice, he died to sin's power once and for all, but he now lives, okay? He died to sin's power, period. So what after that? Now he lives continuously for the Father's pleasure. This is holiness. So let it be the same with you. Since you are now joined with him, you must continually view yourselves as dead and unresponsive to sin's appeal while living daily for God's pleasure in union with Jesus, the anointed one. So if I'm living for my pleasure, I'm going to make certain decisions that please me. One problem, that guy's dead. So when I start living in that, I start living in a delusion. Do you remember what I taught last week? The number one thing the enemy wants to get us to live in is delusion because he, does, he has no authority over anything in reality. At the end of Matthew, Jesus said, I've got the keys to death in the grave, go. He's got the keys. If he has all the keys, how many keys does the devil now have? None. Okay, it's math, all right? Five minus five equals zero. So I actually had to think for a second, make sure I was saying that right. All right, it's been, it's been a long time. All right, so if he has all the keys, that means the enemy has no authority over anything in reality. So the only way he can start messing with you or your destiny or your calling or your family is to get you to start living in something other than reality, which is delusion. Once you get into delusion, now you've entered into territory where he actually has some authority over. Why? Because Yahweh doesn't deal with delusion. He deals with reality. So if you're living in delusion, there's nothing that the Lord can do in you until you heed the call to come out of delusion and into marvelous light, which he, Ephesians 5 says, turns everything that's hidden in the darkness into truth. What is truth? Reality. Are y'all with me? I know this is a lot. So what, it, what Paul is saying is, is he's saying, I once lived to please me. But now that I have died and been resurrected, I, like Jesus, live to please him. And if I live to please him, I'm making decisions that are radically different than how I live pleasing myself. If I'm living to please him, what am I naturally going to do? Run from sin. I'm going to hate sin. Why? Because I'm living to please him, not because I'm hating sin. Y'all with me? Let me mess with your brain for a second. 
when we start living to say no to sin, eventually you'll end up saying yes. Nope, 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 and then a moment of weakness, yes. Amen? You don't have to hide, right? No, 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 no. Okay, sure, whatever. He's got grace, right? But if you're living for God's pleasure, do you see the shift? If you're living for God's pleasure and you've died to that, now when the moment of compromise or the fox comes into the story, you're now looking at it and you're not saying no to it. You're saying yes to him and your yes to him creates a a subsequent consequence of a no to the temptation. Right? Right? So, so you can get in a 12-step program on how to say no, or you could get in a one-step program. One thing I desire, and this shall I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, and it'll take care of all the stuff that you used to go through 12 steps to say no to for a month. Man, I felt that one. That was good. Verse 12, sin is a dethroned monarch, so you must no longer give it an opportunity to rule over your life. Controlling how you live and compelling you to obey its desires and cravings. So then refuse to answer its call to surrender your body as a tool for wickedness. Instead, here comes the yes, instead passionately answer God's call to keep yielding your body to him as one who has now experienced resurrection life. Sin is a dethroned monarch. It's nothing. It's nothing. If you've died, sin is nothing to you. You have eternal life. You are the righteousness of God. If you're the righteousness of God, that means he has to see you as perfect. If he sees you as perfect, that means he sees you without flaw. If he sees you without flaw, that means to him you have no flaws. So sin is a dethroned monarch. You must not give it an opportunity to rule over your life, controlling your life, and compelling you to obey its, not yours, its desires and cravings. Refuse to answer its call to surrender your body as a tool for wickedness. He's talking to righteous people. Remember what I read in chapter 5? Chapter 5 all talked about you're the righteousness of God, which led into chapter 6, where he's now saying, now that you're the righteousness of God, let's go a little deeper and talk about how your life should look now that you are the righteousness of God. Okay, instead, passionately answer God's call to keep yielding, to keep yielding your body to him as one who has now experienced resurrection life. You live now for his pleasure, ready to be used for his noble purposes. There's a note right here. Another way this could be translated right there is, the members of your body will be used as weapons for the righteousness of God. Remember this. This is maybe one of my favorite favorite verses in the whole Passion Translation. Okay? Verse 14, and I'm almost done. Remember this. Sin will not conquer you, for God already has. You are not governed by the law, but governed by the reign of the grace of God. What are we to do then? Almost done. Should we sin to our heart's content since there's no law to condemn us anymore? 
What a terrible thought. Don't you realize that grace frees you to choose your own master? But choose carefully, for you surrender yourself to become a servant, bound to the one you choose to obey. If you choose to love sin, it will become your master. It will own you and reward you with death. But if you choose to love and obey God, he will lead you into perfect righteousness. And thanks be to God, for in the past you were servants of sin, but now, now your obedience is heart deep and your life is being molded by truth through the teaching you are devoted to. And now you celebrate your freedom from your former master, sin. You've left its bondage, and now God's perfect righteousness holds power over you as his loving servants. Man, I could keep going, I could keep going. Let's just finish it out. Only a couple more verses, okay? I've you, are y'all good? Okay. I've used the familiar terms, a servant and a master, to compensate for your weakness to understand. Tell it like it is. <laughs> for just as you surrendered your bodies and souls, he's using past tense, just as you surrendered, used to surrender, your bodies and souls to impurity and lawlessness, which only brought more lawlessness into your lives. So now surrender yourselves as servants of righteousness, which brings you deeper into true holiness. Okay? Surrender yourselves as servants to righteousness. You've already got righteousness. So now that you have righteousness, going deeper into that will bring you deeper into true holiness. For when you were bound as servants to sin, you lived your lives free from any obligation to righteousness. I read this this week and was just, my mind was just melted. What Paul was saying was, when you lived in covenant with sin, you had zero, zero obligations to righteousness. So when you were alive in sin, you were dead in Christ. Right? When you became alive in Christ, the first thing that had to happen is for you to die to sin. So Paul right here is using just this unbelievable, I, I, I can't even get through how awesome his writing is right here. He's using this, and he's basically going two different ways. He's saying, when you were a sinner, you being the righteousness of God didn't mean anything. Right? Yes. Awesome. Now that we've made that realization, now that you're the righteousness of God, how much should sin mean to you? Nothing. So, so he devalues sin by showing them how much they devalued God before salvation. Uh, isn't that crazy? So cool. So tell me, tell me what benefit ensued from doing those things that you're now ashamed of. It left you with nothing but a legacy of shame and death. But now, 
as God's loving servants, you live in joyous freedom from the power of sin. Hello, there it is right there. (laughs) Right? Does sin have power? It doesn't matter because it doesn't have power over me. Heretic. Read Romans. All right. Listen, Listen to this right here. Okay? Consider the benefits you now enjoy. Here we go. You are brought deeper into the experience of true holiness that ends with eternal life. For sin's meager wages is death, but God's lavish gift is eternal life found in your union with the Lord Jesus, the anointed one. And then he goes through and talks about how we shouldn't live obligated to sin anymore because of all that. And then Romans 8 hits and just tears the house down. Right? I mean, Romans, the case is closed. There's no accusing voice. There's no condemnation against those who are joined in life union with Jesus, the anointed one. So it's 11. All I've done is basically read scripture all day. But that's amazing because it would be way, way easier to do that than for me to try to give you a message that says all the same stuff. Holiness. Let me, let me, actually, let me read this real quick. What time is it? 11.54. St. Augustine wrote on this uh, around the 5th century, 4th century, excuse me, um, A.D. And this is what he had to say. He says, uh, okay, he says, if then you are good, if you are good, Praise is due to him who made you so. It is no credit to you. For if you were left to yourself, you could only be wicked. Why then do you try to pervert the truth in wishing to be praised when you do good and blaming God when you do evil? For though he said, and he's quoting Matthew, though he said, Let your works shine before man. In the same Sermon on the Mount, he also said, Do not parade your good deeds before man. I never called that until just then. Until Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount at one point says, Let your works shine before men so that they may glorify God. In the same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not parade your good works before men. Okay, where is Revelation? Right there in between. So if you think there are contradictions in St. Paul, you will find the same in the Gospels. But if you refrain from troubling the waters of your heart, you will recognize here the peace of the Scriptures. With it, you will have peace. And then he says this, And so, my brothers, our concern should not be only to live as we ought, but also to do so in the sight of men. He's talking about what you do because you're saved, okay? Evangelism, etc. Not only to have a good conscience, but also so far as we can in our weakness, so far as we can govern our frailty to do nothing which might lead our weak brother into thinking evil of us. Otherwise, this, this is the quote he said, otherwise, 
as we feed on the good pasture and drink the pure water, we may trample on God's meadow and weaker sheep will have to feed on trampled grass and drink from troubled waters. So what he's saying, he's writing to really still the early church around the 4th century AD, um, a little bit older, but still relatively young. And what he's saying is the same thing James is saying and really the same thing Paul is saying. What he's saying is, is that you have been saved into a greater kingdom. Therefore, if you live your life as you did before you entered this kingdom, it's going to cause others who are weaker to look at you and begin to feed on less than what they're actually designed for because you're feeding on less than what you were designed for. So when we are Christians, when we're saved, but instead of living set apart consistently, and again, just to reiterate, I'm not talking about works to earn anything. That's not what I'm talking about. But when we are the righteousness of God, but we live as the unrighteousness of God, people look at us and say, if that's the righteousness of God, that don't look too different than what I got. And we start reproducing Genesis of the same kind. So unrighteous people pretending to be righteous or thinking that they're righteous, apart from living, set apart, begin to reproduce those who say they're righteous by their words, but live nothing like the righteousness of God by their works. So, so we have a lot of, in the South especially, a lot of people that if you ask them, in fact, we do this all the time. We pray for so many homeless people. Every, it's not even funny every week. Um, especially this week. But if you're walking down the street and you're praying for people, the first thing I say is, do you know who Jesus is? And I've met, I mean, I could maybe count on my, on my five fingers how many people have actually said, no, I don't know who Jesus is. Yet all of them are lost. I say all of them loosely. I'm sure there was some, you know, legit ones. But in conversation. So, so what we have in the South is, and this is why I talk about the church so much, not because I, I love doing that, but because we, we've got to be set apart. We're not going to be able to reign in a kingdom that is totally other than the system of our world unless we first become the seed living other than the system of our world. That's what he's talking about when he says you're in the world, but you're not of the world. That doesn't mean distancing ourselves from all the bad people. That's what we thought it meant. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. So because you're of the world, stay away from me. No, no, no. What he's saying is, is you're in the world, so you need to start embracing everything in the earth that is still of the earth so that it can be brought into the reality that is not of the earth, but of on earth as it is in heaven, right? So you being in the world, but not of the world was never a call to be pulled away from unbelievers. I'm not talking about doing what they do. I'm talking about how we normally, for example, if there's somebody who is gay, you know what most Christians will not do? Walk with them. Right? Because they're living in the wrong. And yet we walk with people who are addicted to looking stuff on their computer all the time. And it's all the same. Right? So, so we'll keep them at a distance because we're in the world, but we're not of the world, brother. I would say that's more like the world, right? Instead, as somebody who is of a greater kingdom, who really holds the key, possibly the only key in their life to unlocking their true identity, 
it would be robbing the move of God in their life for me to say, I've got to stay away from you because you're a sinner. When I'm the key to bringing them into freedom. You know what I'm saying? So stay, stay distant, stay distant, stay distant. And all of a sudden they're driving off a cliff. We know the cliff's coming up, but we're saying nothing because at the end of the day, we really don't care whether or not they make it through the cliff. That, that, that is what I'm talking about when I talk about holiness. I'm talking about you living like Jesus. All who believe in me, John says, Jesus says, will do the works I do and greater works. What is he talking about? He's not just talking about raising the dead. That includes raising the dead, but he's talking about raising the dead, casting out demons, cleansing the leopards, and living holy. Right? It's ludicrous for me to think I can cast out a devil and not live without sin. And listen, and again, again, I'm not talking about being perfect. I'm talking about what reigns over my life. What controls the decisions I make? So am I making a decision to further my career because it looks like the right thing? Or am I making a decision to further my career because the Lord has specifically told me that's what you need to do? Those are not the same thing. One of those is living to please me. The other is living to please him. If I'm in him, but I'm continually living to please me, I'm no longer living in reality. I've now moved into delusion where the enemy is running rampant in my life. We ask the Lord to bless things that he never called us into. That's delusion. <laughs> right? Lord, Lord, would you just please, man, I made it to this job. I hate it. And the Lord's saying, listen, I never called you there in the first place. So here's the fix. Bye. Right? And I just use career because that's just, you know, that, the big thing with a bunch of young adults is we're trying to figure life out. I'm telling you, the number one thing we need to figure out is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, King James right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not your job, not your career, but, 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 you know, bro, brother, you don't know what I got going on in my life. I don't need to know. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I can't afford to tithe, but I don't know about your situation. All I know is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, right? I don't know if I should do this. I don't know if I should do this or if I should do this. Doesn't matter. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. You see what I'm talking about? That, so you're living set apart. Your life should look different when you enter into salvation than it did before you entered into salvation. And I'm not just talking about how you pray for people. I'm talking about how you live. How do you love people? I mean, how do, like, you know what I mean? We, we can't love people right in the church. Look, just get on Facebook. We don't love people. We want our opinion to be right, even if it comes at the cost of a brother and sister. In fact, that might be a bonus. I'm speaking to the camera because a lot of y'all are on Facebook watching this right now. You know what I'm saying? Bro, I got to be right about this, right about this and somebody disagrees with you, and you immediately start breaking covenant. That's all we do is just break, 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 while, the, while we're living in that delusion, because if you're saved, you have no room for offense. 
Did you know that? If you are saved, if you are born again, that means you have no room for offense. That's scripture. That's not me. So take it up with the Lord. All right? So you have no room for offense. If you start getting offended, and I'm speaking to somebody who gets hated on every week. So trust me. This, this week, I've had multiple opportunities to get super offended. So, so I'm speaking from experience that most of the time I fail at this. I get offended. And that's wrong. So, so if we have no room for offense and somebody speaks something over, let me just use me. Somebody tells me, hey, brother, I don't agree with anything you said. I could get offended. Or I could say, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I know what I heard. We can disagree, and I still love you. I mean, what, what, if we, what if we could find, because we don't have it, what if we could find the lost art of being able to walk with people even if you don't agree on 100% of their ideas? When, when do we lose that? You don't have to agree with me on the rapture. You can believe he's coming in the morning every day of the week. You know what I'm saying? That's all we heard. He's coming back in the morning. 30 years later, we woke up this morning, grabbed some coffee, and spent time with the Lord. He came back. He just didn't rapture me away. But, you know what I'm saying? But, but listen, seriously, you can believe that all day long. And guess what? You can still come to this church. We can still do life together. We can still minister with each other. Because I promise you, if the rapture happens, I'm going to be on the first load. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I will. And all of you will be too. But if I prepare to leave, I'll never be ready to stay. If I prepare to stay, I'll always be ready to leave. So I'm just going to plan and assume like we've got another 5,000 years to make sure that in 5,000 years they're burning hotter than we were in 2020. And if he decides to come escape us halfway through it, guess what? Praise the Lord, we built it halfway. It, somehow we always end up there. Okay. Because it, it, that's just my thing. It just burns me up how we ever believe that. Matt, where's Matt? Did he just leave? Oh, wait, I forgot Daniel. You're here. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. Come on. Come on. We're going to pray over Daniel because they're uh, abandoning us. No, I'm just kidding. They're, uh, they're leaving. Uh, they're moving toward uh, family in Kentucky. But save that for the end. Hang with me. Okay. Hang with me. Uh, we're, okay. N.T. Wright, I'm going to end with this. N.T. Wright, my favorite theologian. N.T. Wright says that holiness, holiness is how we become fully human. Okay? And, and it goes through and explains how Jesus was the perfect human. Okay? Hang with me. Humans, mankind, humankind, humans were before sin, before Adam and Eve sinned, humans were perfect image bearers of God. If you remove sin from the equation, humans are the perfect image bearers of God. We were, we were made in his image. So to not look like God is to live unnatural. Sin, sin caused humans to stop being able to perfectly bear that image. That does not mean we should abandon the idea of being human. Humans are God's design. Therefore, 
just as creation is in the process of being restored by mankind, subduing the earth, which is removing sin and evil ultimately, mankind is being restored, removing sin and evil by and through sozo salvation. So just like the earth right now is in the beginning stages of being restored to originality, you and I are as saved. You and I are being in the process restored to originality, which Paul says being made in the likeness of God. So I said this Tuesday night, and this is probably way too late to bring this up, but Jesus defeated death. Amen? Yet death is not defeated. Jesus defeated death, yet death is not defeated yet. Okay? A lot revelation and the tension that exists between two seemingly contradictory ideas. Jesus died, Jesus died to give us our job back not do the job for us. Psalm 8, Psalm 8. Everything in creation was put under the authority of Adam's sons. That's Psalm 8. What was the call of Adam and Eve? What was the call of Adam and Eve? Genesis 1. It was to be fruitful, to multiply, and subdue the earth. Subdue the earth. When they sin, they lost the capability to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. The earth then became subdued by evil. So rather than subduing, they became subdued. You ready? So when Jesus died, Jesus didn't die to subdue the earth for us. Why didn't God just subdue the earth when he made them and said, have fun? Why would he tell, be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth? Why wouldn't God say, subdued, all right, y'all can just have fun now? Because he created image bearers that the joy of their life would be broadcasting that image back to God in worship and throughout the cosmos until everything was subdued under the image of Almighty God. So it was a joy to image forth the image of God that they bore. When they sin, they lost the perfect image. There was still an image there, but now it had a big giant black ink spot. So now as they're projecting an image into the creation, now creation's getting bits and pieces of the image they were designed to see, but never the totality of the image it was designed to see. Jesus came with one mission, one mission, to remove the blemish. So when he dies on a cross, what does he say? It is finished, broad. It is finished. And in that moment, he doesn't subdue the earth, he subdues evil on behalf of the image bearers so that the image bearers could begin once again imaging forth that image throughout the globe, throughout all of creation until the entire creation is subdued under the image of God. So he defeated death on behalf of us. 
now we're called to take that victory and establish it all throughout creation. So people today are still dying, yet death is defeated. But if we're saved, we have eternal life. So death is meaningless to us. We have eternal life, right? So what we're called to do is now take our reality and plant that into the earth so that as it grows, it brings those who are still being subdued by death into their actual design, which is to subdue death. So he didn't do the job for us. He did the job in us so that we could then take what he did within us and broadcast it until all of creation is brought into on earth as it is in heaven reality. Right? So why do we evangelize? Because we look like the image of God that the globe needs. That all is rooted ultimately in righteousness, but then it's rooted in you making sure you live your life set apart. Not because you're saying no to evil and not because you're earning something in his sight, but because you've already said yes to him, which created a no to evil, and you've already earned every perfect identity within his sight. So now that I'm seen as perfect, what do I need to do within the globe to make sure they are seen as perfect as well? All of creation is standing on tiptoe, waiting for the manifestation of the sons and daughters of God. Why? Because when we start looking like we were designed to look, it will start looking like it was designed to look. Oh, man. We need to be dismantling the effects of sin and death on the lost world, but the enemy would love for you to chase after removing the sin in your brother's life while ignoring the sin in your own. The enemy would love nothing more than for you to be focused on what's wrong with everybody else and completely glaze over what's wrong with you. And again, I am not talking about righteousness. But there's places in my life where I've got to grow into my set-apart identity. There's places in my life where I've allowed offense or I've allowed doubt or I've allowed even the thought that I'm not what he says he is. That's all a part of it too. If you go through a moment and you think, maybe I'm not as good as he says I am, right there in that moment, you're not living in truth. You're not living in reality. Are you all with me? We have to get serious about this. I desire, I desire to consecrate myself for the Lord. Why? Because Psalm 27, 4 says, and I quote this every week, one thing I ask and this shall I seek to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I want to die to myself to find my life. I want to bear his image in the cosmos. I want lip to lip as Moses had. I want my shadow to fall on people and then be healed. I want to speak to storms and viruses and then be shifted in a moment. I want our church to be so full of him that every power of hell trembles at the thought of being within five miles of here. I desire to be holy as he is holy. We should desire that. I should desire to be holy as he is holy. Why? Because I look like he looks. 
I'm missing the fullness of who I am if I'm living as anything other than Jesus as my standard. The standard is not what's good enough. You know, we used to say this in uh, youth ministry. We didn't ask uh, if we, you know, shouldn't do this and this and this, particularly when we're talking about dating. The question we used to ask is, well, tell us exactly what sin is so we can get right up as close as we can. As kids, that's what we, you know what I mean? So we'd say, so, we'd say, so uh, whoever my youth pastor was at the moment. So uh, what about this? Is that technically sin or is it kind of just like a gray area? And if they said gray area, game on. Now, I never date anybody seriously until Jordan. So that would have been not great. But the Lord protected me from that. But that's where a lot of people fall in the church. Is, is we, we think what's gray. And the Lord is trying to get us out of darkness and to be honest, really out of grayness and into marvelous light. I'd rather you be hot or cold, but if you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. You, you, I'd rather you be lost or fully saved, but if you're a pretender, we're not gonna do anything with that. And ironically, most of the church today is full of lukewarm. This is the message of being set apart. This is the message of holiness, that you lay down the old wineskin, that you lay down the cold, that you lay down the Adam nature, the sin nature, the old man, and that as you lay that down, you begin to experience resurrection life. How did all the disciples go through being tormented and killed and their heads chopped off and pulled apart by horses and crucified upside down and yet the church explode because they lived so set apart that when they were dying it gave birth to a freedom for a whole nother group of people that said if they could live set apart even unto death I can live set apart even unto death and the church was built as all theologians theologians say on the blood of the martyrs you must die to find life. Whoever loses his life will find it, and whoever finds his own life will lose it. I, so I know there's a lot of stuff that I can make way more clear, but that stuff we're going to have to take to the secret place. But I just feel the Lord, the Lord is pulling us in this season. I said this two weeks ago, I believe, that what we do in this season will determine what we hold in the next Hear that. What you do in this season will determine what you hold in the next. How set apart you get in this season will determine how much glory you see in the next. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. And, uh, and as I pray, I just, I just want the Lord to show us those foxes, to show us the foxes. So Y'all just pray with me for a moment. Yahweh, I honor you in this place. I honor you in this place. This is holy ground. This is set apart ground here. In fact, all of scripture through the Old Testament and the New Testament calls you holy. Why? Because you are totally other than. And you died to give us access to that other than reality where you are tore the veil into the Holy of Holies and gave every man an inner Holy of Holies that rivaled anything that the temple ever produced. So Yahweh, I pray today that you would allow us to see those compromises.
Where have we compromised? It could be so little as what we were talking about earlier in worship. It could be so little as a flawed view of ourselves. It could be doubt. It could be disobedience. It could be big stuff. Maybe you feel like you're in bondage to impurity. Maybe you feel like that there are chains that sin has put around your neck that you don't feel like you can get loose from. I'm telling you today, you can. I'm not just telling you you can, I'm telling you you will in Jesus' name. I pray that you would let all that stuff in the darkness, everything within the depths of us, would you allow that to rise to the surface and light to so shine upon it that every single thing we were afraid to bring to you is turned into such a measure of truth that we now consider the stuff we used to be afraid of stuff we find joy in. I pray that. Lord, I pray you would restore marriages. I pray that husbands and wives would be so consumed with living devoted to the other that it would produce a a fusion that is unmistakable in the globe. Restore relationships, restore kids, kids that maybe don't view Abba, Yahweh, Father correctly because maybe they didn't have a good father or maybe they didn't have a good mother or maybe they didn't have parents that stayed together their whole lives. That's the majority today. Yahweh, I pray that you would replace those images with images of who you really are which is a bridegroom who will never leave and a papa who will never be disappointed. Thank you for making us the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, for casting our sins as far as the east is from the west. This will be a church that is set apart. We will be a people that are set apart. In your name, amen. Amen.